Amen. It is our pleasure to preach through whole books of the Bible as we continue on in the book of Acts. This morning, looking at Acts chapter 25, we'll begin reading in verse 13 and go into chapter 26. This is a longer reading, but I would exhort you to give your reverent and diligent attention to the reading and hearing of God's most holy word. Verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left, prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Rome. Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face, had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought up no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I had nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversy of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time. They are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to worship, uh, made, excuse me, hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it, though incredible by any of you, that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought not to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they are put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. 
And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me, those who journeyed with me. And we had, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Recently, my wife had an unenviable phone call to the IRS to get some tax documents that she needed for work. After going through the whole automated system of pressing one for this, pressing two for that, she finally got to where she needed to go, only to receive a recording that said that there was no one to receive her phone call and that she would have to call back another day. Well, this took place again and again over the course of several days, only to get the same recorded message, call back another day. Well, finally, after four or five days, she finally was able to get through and actually talk to an actual human being, an individual, but only after being on hold for about two hours. But I'm glad to report to you that she got what she was needed, and it will be arriving in two to four or six weeks. (laughs) And I'm sure you've had similar experiences where you've been passed off from one to another, tied up in governmental bureaucracy. Those among us that are immigrants know this all too well. Well, if you think governmental inefficiency is something new, think again. The book of Acts tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. As Paul finds himself caught in a web of bureaucracy, shuffled off from one to another, and no one wanting to make the very unpopular decision to set him free, even though there is told that there is no charges against him, that that he can be imprisoned, let alone put to death. And so justice was delayed, and delayed, and delayed some more. And yet through it, Paul was given many opportunities to preach the gospel. Paul's call, if you remember, was not only that he would suffer for the name of Christ, but also that he would be the chosen instrument to carry the name of Christ before Gentiles, before rulers and kings, and even the children of Israel. And we see that Paul's imprisonment gives him the opportunity to do just that, to testify before rulers and even before kings, as we see this morning. Yet not surprisingly, they are dismissive of the things that Paul says. They justify their indecision. They continue to put up roadblocks so that the truth that Paul is saying does not penetrate their heart and their mind. 
and they use several smoke screens, many of which are not uncommon today, ones that you have heard, no doubt, perhaps at one time you thought as well. So how do we think through these things? Is there any legitimacy to them? And what is our response? Well, in this passage before us, there are four major objections to Paul's argument. But you remember, Paul's argument isn't ultimately about his freedom or even about his case. Paul's argument is about Christ. In so doing, Paul gives a defense of the gospel. And if you're going to live as a Christian in this world and a witness for Christ, the same things will be said of you. And as a result, a defense will be needed. And so this morning we will see four points, hopefully, Lord willing, today too, and next week Pastor Myers will do the last two, but the four are this, right, not religion, alive, not dead, true, not crazy, humble, not proud. First, right, not religion. Paul, having given several testimonies before the Roman tribunal, before the Sanhedrin, before two Roman governors, Felix and now Festus, now finds himself before the regional king of that area, Herod Agrippa. And you might think that there is a lot of Herods in the Bible. And if you think that, you are correct. This Herod is Herod Agrippa II. He is the son of Herod Agrippa I, the one that we met in Acts chapter 12, the one that killed the apostle James. And this Herod is also the great-grandson of the great Herod, Herod the Great, who put all the baby boys in Bethlehem to death. This Herod ultimately would be the last Herod in the Herodian dynasty. He was not a king like we would think of a king, meaning that he was not a king with absolute power. Rather, he was, in many ways, a puppet king, having some power, having some authority, but only as much as the Romans would allow. And so with Agrippa and Festus meeting here in this chapter, you see the merging together of Roman rule and Jewish rule in one. And they essentially tolerated and appeased one another so as to keep peace and ultimately to keep rule and reign. And so Festus lays out Paul's capes to Agrippa, and Agrippa agrees to hear the case. Festus essentially says this man was left over from the time that he took on the Roman rulership underneath the rule of Felix. And Festus quite openly and honestly admits that he doesn't know what to do with him because Paul has appealed to Caesar. But he says, I can find no charges in which to formally charge him. And therefore, I cannot send him to Caesar without a charge. In fact, he says as much when he presents Paul before Agrippa. He says in verse 27, the end of chapter 25, it seemed unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Well, Agrippa does agree to hear and see if he can help. And so we read that Agrippa and Bernice come and enter into this hall with great pomp and great circumstance. All the regalia of a king and queen they would have had. 
And we have seen some of this, haven't we, in our day, in the last few weeks, especially with the death of the Queen of England and the crowning of a new king in England. You might ask, why all the pageantry? Why all the pomp and circumstance, both in England as well as what we see here? Well, all of that demonstrates an amount of grandeur and of magnificence and power. Ultimately, it shows greatness, doesn't it? It demonstrates to the people of that country as well as to all countries that there is might. There is a, you don't want to mess with us, intimidation factor. And no doubt that is the situation here. And that is what Paul is dealing with. That is what he is facing as he comes in as just this little itty-bitty Paul, a mere apostle before a great and mighty king, a proud king. And that is indeed what we read about with Festus and Agrippa. Festus as the governor, Agrippa as the king. These were indeed proud men. And most rulers and kings are, aren't they? And yet they were not the first, nor would they be the last. And nor do you need to be a king or a ruler to be proud Pride is native to our fallen self. As one Puritan put it, pride is the first sinful garment we put on in this world and often the last that we take off. Meaning that is so near and dear to us that we do not even recognize it in ourselves. And yet it is the root of much evil, it is the root of much sin, both in us as well as in the world. Indeed, it was the damning sin of Satan himself that precipitated his fall from heaven. And therefore, it was the temptation of choice put before our first parents, Adam and Eve, that if they would just eat of this fruit, they would be made wise. Wise as what? Wise as God. They would be made like God, to which they succumbed. And therefore, pride has been the sin du jour of all to this very day. Proverbs 16, 18 said, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proud hearts, therefore, hate humility and hates anything that calls for death to self. It bristles and fights against it. And oftentimes, it is the ultimate root of unbelief, isn't it? You might wonder, why do people not believe in the gospel? It's because of pride. Why do people not bow the knee? It's because pride. Why do people not live for Christ? It is because they are proud and they have pride. It does not matter how you cut it. It always comes back to the same. And why is that? Well, if you've been with us in our Sunday school series, we are learning what it means to love one another. And we are looking at all the one another commands in the Scripture And they all come from that chief one another command, which is to love one another. It's what's rooted in the greatest commandment, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as our self. And therefore, the proper worldview, therefore, is God, others, you. But pride inverses that, doesn't it? It inverses that order. It tells you, no, love you. Love self. Put self first. 
you first, not others, and surely not God. And so therefore, we can say that pride is antithetical to love. So when we think of unbelieving spouses or neighbors or family members or our coworkers, or even here, Festus and Agrippa, you might say, what is it that's holding them back? And ultimately, I think we can say that they are proud men and proud women. And such were not some of you, such were all of you. And much still remains, doesn't it? So when you think of how to pray for your unbelieving people in your life, pray that God would break down the wall of pride, that they would turn from loving self to loving God, that they would have humility to listen and to learn. Well, proud people will give reasons why they just are not able to believe, why they are not able to listen to the preaching of truth and the preaching of the good news of the gospel. And we see that with Festus and then later with Agrippa. And it sounds like this. You read of it in verse 18 when Festus is presenting Paul's case to Agrippa. He says, uh, verse 18, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I suppose but rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. You hear what he is saying? Agrippa, this is a whole lot of nothing. This is about religion. This is about religious controversy. And Agrippa, you and I are not religious people. They think that their religion is right and their thoughts are right and everybody else is wrong. This is just religious wrangling, Agrippa. Therefore, it's of no great importance. It's just a matter that we need to deal with and get rid of, that we need to dispense of. And no doubt you have heard something of the same before, that Christianity is just part of religion. It's part of the ideations of man. And even in our day and age, it is even deemed as evil, that religion is part of the power structures of our society. It's used to keep the power in the hands of a few and ultimately to oppress all others. And therefore, we are told that religion is ultimately responsible for strife and hostility and even wars in the world. And so no doubt you've seen those bumper stickers with that word of peace or harmony or unity and it has all the different religious symbols on it. And the idea is that can't we just all get along? That you just choose your religion, whatever religion you like. Choose your God or, or choose no God at all. Whatever is good for you is good for you. Your truth is your truth. And truth is whatever you want it to be, whatever makes you happy, wherever you find peace. And this is ultimately how we will have peace. This is how we'll have tolerance of all. It's interesting that there's tolerance for all, except for all that say that there is only one truth, right? That is what Festus says to Agrippa. This is just religiosity. We are being disturbed and bothered by it. 
This does not have anything to do with us. We are above it. Yet notice Paul's response to this. When he gives the opportunity to make his defense, he appeals to Agrippa and says, I am so glad to be able to stand before you, Agrippa, especially because you are, verse 3, familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. See, Agrippa would have been a Jew, at least in theory. And so Paul makes his appeal to him as a Jew. And what is it that he says? He says, well, in verse 4, that I've been a Jew since my birth, that I was born and raised. I lived in Jerusalem all of my life. I was in the center of it all. He even goes on to say, I've been part of the, the strictest parts of our religion, that I've lived as a Pharisee. Now, there's a lot of things that could be said about the Pharisees, but the greatest thing was that they were devoted. You could not say that a Pharisee was a slouch in regards to the things that the Old Testament scriptures talked about. Now, oftentimes they were led astray or or were not getting to the heart of the matter, but no doubt they were dedicated. And so Paul was saying, that was me. I was dedicated, and in fact, amongst the dedicated, I was the most dedicated. I have all of the credentials. He goes on to say, I know the law, I know the prophets, and essentially says, nothing that I say is out of accord according to it. In fact, he can say in verse 6, look at this, and now I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. In fact, he'll go on to say later in his speech in verse 22 that I say nothing but what the prophets and what Moses said would come to pass. This is what God has always promised. In other words, the truth that I confess is the truth that goes back all the way to the very beginning. So you cannot say that I am a part of some little sect, some new religion, some new cult. This is God's truth. And it's his truth from the foundation of the world. And that is where Christianity, my friends, stands head and shoulders above all religions. All religions can be marked by time. That they did not start until this specific time, usually with a specific person. And some might argue the same with Christianity, that it started with Christ. But we know that the truth of Christianity goes far back. In fact, way back to the very beginning. That yes, Christ came in time. He was the fulfillment of time. But Christ was the creator of the heavens and of the earth. And so when we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. That God is the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even with the fall of mankind, you have the first promise of redemption and salvation in the coming of the snake crusher. That is a prophecy about Christ. And that was when there was only just two people on planet Earth. And so therefore, Christianity is not just one amongst many. It's the truth from the start all the way to the finish. Its truthfulness is demonstrated in its longevity, its, real, its reliability, its consistency to the human experience and to the human condition. 
In every way, it passes the sniff test, doesn't it? And so it cannot be dismissed as pure just religion or religiosity. Now, this is right. This is true. It's the measure of truth. In fact, the measure of all mankind. We do not judge it. No, it judges us because it is of God. It is the rock that is higher than us. We cannot inverse the two. That is exactly what Festus was wanting to do. He was wanting to judge the the truthfulness of what Paul is saying. And what Paul is saying is, no, Festus, this truth judges you. You stand underneath it, not above it, not over it. There is truth and there is no other. Therefore, Jesus can say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not one among many. No, it is right. It is true. It is not just religion. It cannot be dismissed. It cannot be ignored. Well, second, we see alive, not dead. Festus goes on to say something to Agrippa that is equally dismissive of what Paul has said and would say. Not only does he say that this is Religion, but notice what he goes on to say in verse 19. Rather, they have certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. This is just about a certain Jesus. Now, remember the name Jesus was not an uncommon name in first central central, uh, Canaan and Israel. Rather, it was the reiteration of the name Joshua, one of the greatest figures of the Old Testament. And therefore, many boys were named Jesus. And so Festus has to say, this has to do with a certain Jesus. What he is saying is that this is about some Jesus. You can hear the suspicion in Festus' words that there is anything special about this Jesus. He is just Jesus, just like any and every other Jesus. It'd be like in our day and age saying John and then having to say John who? Which one? There are so many. That is the same here. Jesus who? Which one? And Festus follows it up with saying, according to Paul, the one who is dead and now alive. The New American Standard Bible probably captures the essence of this verse, the vest, when it says, This is about a certain dead man, Jesus, who Paul asserts to be alive. You hear what Festus is saying. He's dead, but poor Paul, he thinks he's alive. You can hear the skepticism. You can hear the disbelief in his voice. He was dead, but Paul now thinks he is alive. Yeah, right, and I am Peter Pan. That's essentially what Festus is saying And the same skepticism and doubt is given today, isn't it? You believe in a man that was dead and now alive? Ha! That is comical. That is laughable. And pigs can fly. You know, that is is what the people are saying. How gullible do you think I am? And yet, how does Paul respond to this? Does he try to, in return, 
mock Festus and Agrippa? No, he says, you need to understand verse 8 in chapter 26. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why do you think it is incredible that God cannot do this? Why do you think this is beyond belief? Is anything beyond God? Is anything too difficult for him? If it is, he is not God. He is the one that created the heavens and the earth. He is the one that created the furthest galaxies. He's the one that holds together the tiniest molecule. He holds it all together perfectly. He is the one that has given life to all of creation. And therefore, how hard is it to give that life back to one? On the scale of difficulty, in the grand scheme of things, it's not difficult at all. And surely not beyond belief. Do we not see greater powers of and feats every single day? Just think of the reality that we've grown so accustomed to. We are sitting on a rock, the third rock from the sun, as it orbits perfectly around a giant gaseous ball of fire, which is one system in a part of a relatively small galaxy in the midst of seas of galaxies. Perhaps you've seen recently that they have a new telescope, one that has replaced Hubble named Webb, and they're beginning to see the the beginning pictures of this new telescope. And these astronomers are amazed because they're seeing things much more clearly than they have ever seen it before. And yet, they still cannot reach the end. The limits of God's galaxy, of his world's, And so go ahead and tell me again, why is it so difficult to believe that God would raise a man from the dead? Now it's true, none of us have seen with our own eyes the resurrected Christ. Same was true of Festus and of Agrippa, of course. But we have seen resurrection power, haven't we? And that is what Paul testifies to, doesn't he? In verse 9, he talks about how he opposed this Jesus of Nazareth. How he locked up his followers. And that when it came to the time to cast votes to put them to death, he says, I always casted the vote to put them to death. In fact, says that I would make them blaspheme. I was in raging fury against them. I persecuted them and and hunted them down even into foreign cities. And then he goes on to say, but that all changed. In verses 12 through 18, he gives his testimony, and we know his testimony very well. We've heard it often in this book of Acts. But notice something that he says. Notice what Jesus says to Paul. When Paul asks, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 16, he says, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to me. Notice that. You have seen me. And once you see me, you cannot unsee me, can you? And I will appear to you. And I will send you out. He says that in verse 17. I am sending you out to open the eyes so that others too 
like yourself, would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Essentially, he's saying that is the resurrection, beloved. That I experienced the new life, this radical change from death to light, from Satan to God, and I am now charged to do the same for others. That I would go out amongst the Gentiles and that they too would experience the same. And so no, we have not seen the physical resurrection, but we have experienced the spiritual resurrection, haven't we? That each and every one of us can say that we too have been transported from death unto life. That we have been gone from having our eyes darkened to being able to see light. To go from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And once you are alive, you can no longer be dead, can you? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Festus and Agrippa, how can you explain this? I went from murdering those people to persuading others to be like them. You can't explain it in any other way than the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, my resurrection in Christ. And beloved, don't you understand, do you not see why this is such an important truth? This is not just a truth that we celebrate in the spring along with Easter bunnies and egg hunts. No, this resurrection is the key to the Christian life. The resurrection is that life that we have in Christ that makes all the difference. The death and resurrection of Christ is not just an event that happened long, long ago that now motivates us and inspires us. No, it changes us. It's the power of a new life in Christ. It's what Paul experienced. It's what you and I have experienced. That we were dead and now we are alive. And Paul says, this is the reason I'm being put on trial. These people, he says, want to make me pretend like I am still dead. I cannot do that. I'm not the old Paul, or I should say the old Saul anymore. You cannot do that any more than you can put Jesus back into the grave. But he is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, the old me, therefore, is not here either. But the new one is, it has been risen into newness of life. Paul is saying, I cannot unsee what I have seen. Namely, I have seen the risen Christ. I cannot put to death the new life that is in me. Is that true of you? See, my friends, we can argue about the truthfulness and the veracity of Scripture. We can talk about the historical reliability of the resurrection and All of that is true and all of that is important. But it doesn't mean a hill of beans unless you've experienced the resurrection power of a new life in Christ. When you experience what it means to be a new man, what do you experience to be a new woman, a new creature in Christ? Then you cannot unsee what you have seen. You cannot unlive what you have lived It is so radically different. And my friends, it comes by first and foremost surrendering our pride, putting down the smoke screens, all the but, 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 buts that so readily come to mind. We put it all away 
because it doesn't matter if you're white or black or yellow or blue. It does not matter if you're a man or woman or boy or girl. It does not matter if you are the poorest of poor or the king of nations. Each and every one of us will stand before God. And just like Adam and Eve, you'll stand naked and ashamed, a sinner in desperate need of cover. And there is no cover on this earth, is there? There's only the cover that comes from above, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that came to this earth. The only cover that we can have is the cover that is provided by Christ. His name is Jesus. And no, Festus, this Jesus isn't like just any other Jesus. This is the Jesus that is the name above all names. The one that's at the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That Jesus is the Jesus that is proclaimed not just to Festus, not just to Agrippa, but to each and every one of you this day. And therefore, bow the knee. Bow before the King of Kings. For today is the day of salvation. And if you are bowing the knee today, if you know this salvation, if you know this resurrection power, if you know this new life, then how sweet is the name of Jesus that sounds in a believer's ear. What a joy it is, isn't it? To sing and to praise and to exalt the name of Christ. It's why we worship. It's why we go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the name of Christ. I'll finish with this. With the death of the Queen of England, there was a story that was floating around that was attributed to Queen Elizabeth, but it actually came from Queen Victoria. But I believe it expresses the sentiment of both queens. The story goes like this, that after hearing a sermon of Christ's return, the queen spoke to the preacher on the topic which he had preached on. And she said to the preacher, Oh, how I wish that the Lord might come during my own lifetime. Why, asked the preacher, does your majesty feel this earnest desire, he asked. And she said, oh, with quivering lips and whole countenance lighted by deep emotion, she said, oh, I would so love to lay my crown at his feet. That is true. If you be the ruler of Rome, the king of Israel, the queen of England, or like most of us, mere peasants. May these words be the sentiment of each and every one of us, that we would give all to be able to see Christ, to know Christ. In fact, we have seen and known Christ through the new life that is in us. And one day, we shall see him face to face. And what a joy and what a privilege it will be to cast our crowns before the true king, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we see in this passage proud men. And Lord, we first come and we confess that there is much of the same in us. That we come with, with pride, we come with objections, we come with reasons why we should not follow or give our lives to Christ on a daily basis. But Lord, we lay all of those down again. We are reminded of who you are. We see you high and lifted up. The train of your robe filling the temple. 
the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Lord, in the light of who you are, would we bow low? Would we bow our knees and our faces, O Lord, and say we are mere servants of yours? And yet, Lord, what a great place to be, to give of our lives in service to you. No longer slaves of unrighteousness, but slaves to righteousness, presenting our members as living sacrifices to you, holy and pleasing. For you say this is our spiritual act of worship. Lord, we want to worship you this day, this week, in that way. Give us the opportunity to do so as we lay down our lives, lay down our wills and our ways for your will and for your way as we live in obedience to you, the great King of heaven and earth. We pray this in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.